Shapers on Jazz FM. Listen in color. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Thank you. And now we'd like to try and do something made by famous by two of England's great composers, the Beatles. A bouncy and upbeat version of the Beatles classic Can't Buy Me Love. That was Ella Fitzgerald. This is Elliot Moss on Jazz FM with Jazz Shapers, the place where you can hear the very best of those people who are shaping the world of jazz, blues and soul, alongside their equivalents in the world of business, a beer moth from the the business world, a shaper no less. My shaper today is Giles Andrews. He's the co-founder and executive chairman of Zopa. Europe's largest peer-to-peer lending platform. And if you don't know what a peer-to-peer lending platform is, you will by 10am, I promise. Lots coming up from Giles today. In addition to hearing from Giles, you'll be hearing from our programme partners at Mishkondorea. Some words of advice for your business. And on top of all of that, I promise you a punchy and proud mix of music from the shapers of jazz, blues and soul, including Rebecca Ferguson, Albert King, Marlena Shaw and this from Billy Taylor. Billy Taylor with the incredibly famous I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel To Be Free. Giles Andrews, my business shaper today here on Jazz Shapers. And as I said, he's the executive chair and also co-founder of Zopa. I love the name, not to be confused, of course, with a property search company, which sounds remarkably similar. Um, we were first with our name. Good. I knew you'd say that. I knew I'd, I'd pique your interest straight away. Giles, thank you so much for joining me. So Zopa, tell me in a nutshell, what's the elevator pitch to someone who's never heard of peer-to-peer funding? Peer-to-peer lending is effectively creating a marketplace where people who have some money, which otherwise they might buy an investment product with or put in a bank and and buy a savings product, um, and connecting those people with people who want to borrow money. And by connecting them directly on on our marketplace and not going through a bank, everybody gets a better deal. So the investor gets a better deal than they would by sticking money in a bank, and the borrower borrows money more cheaply and more fairly. It's a genius idea. Uh, very simple idea, isn't very, it? Very, very, as, as all the best ideas are, I guess. How many people have benefited from this since you opened your doors back, I think it was in 2004 or so? Um, so we launched the business in 2005. Um, we've just lent our billionth pound, oh. um, and we've helped about 220,000 people. So about 220,000 people have either got a better return or, or got a better loan. Now, the experimental psychologist, which I believe you you were post-Oxford, did you ever think you'd be running a business that had lent a billion pounds or that indeed you set up a business before that and sold it as well? What happened? Where did did the the desire to understand the brain become a desire to understand the commercial opportunities in front of you? Well, psychology was an interesting choice. So I I read science at school and, and, and didn't enjoy it very much and thought, what's the most different thing I can do that isn't biology or chemistry? And, and I, I, I sort of did some research and turned out that if I did psychology, I could write a little bit. I wouldn't say I was a mad keen essay writer, but I was keen to get out of the lab. Um, and I really enjoyed psychology, but it was never going to be a career. I never, I never wanted to be a psychologist. Um, I think some 
interest in people leads you to to want to study psychology, but I wouldn't say it was an all-consuming passion. I also wasn't the kind of person who woke up in the morning thinking, I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, uh, but I had a, a, a sort of somewhat childish passion for cars. And um, I, I remember talking to friends and family and saying, what on earth am I going to do with my life? Because all my friends are, are being told to go and become consultants or lawyers or bankers or something truly horrific like that. And I, and I knew I didn't want to do any of the above. And I actually talked to my brother, who was an accountant and hated being an accountant. And and I said to him, well, you picked accountancy because you didn't know what you wanted to do. So is that a natural thing for people who don't know what they want to do? Should I go and become an accountant? And he looked me in the eye and he said, if you become an accountant, I will never speak to you again. There must be something that you really enjoy doing um, and try and exploit that. So I thought, well, I like, I like playing with cars. So why don't I try and get a job in, in the motor industry? And we're going to hold it just there because you're going to hear all about what happened next and how that led to, I believe, a, a business that was turning over around 250 million quid and some decent profits too. Time for some music in the meantime. This is Rebecca Ferguson and Get Happy. That was Get Happy from Rebecca Ferguson, another cover, and it's been done by loads of people, Frank Sinatra, Billy Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, you name it, they've done it, a phenomenal song. And I'm talking to Giles Andrews today, who said he absolutely didn't want to be unhappy, didn't want to go and become an accountant, who can blame him? Nothing against accountants, they're wonderful people, but you didn't want to do that. You, you love cars themselves, and you ended up, I believe, co-founding a business called Caverdale. Caverdale, is that how Coverdale. It's? Coverdale, which then went on to, I believe, be sold. Yeah, so a group of people took control of, of a shell company that was listed on the mainland stock market um, in the depths of the 90s recession, so 1991, um, with a view to acquiring car dealerships at a time when car dealerships were going bust. So family businesses that had been around for a while are typically overinvested in the boom years of the late 80s and got themselves into trouble in, in the early 90s. And uh, that was a grand plan. I mean, it was a sort of timing was, was, was fantastic. The only problem with their plan is none of them knew anything about cars. And, and they came across me, who at the time was sort of in my mid-20s and, and running uh, car dealerships for a, a national chain, which still exists, actually, a company called Lookers, and, um, and looking to do something sort of more on my own. And, and, and I was, if you like, the, the car guy in, in the team and, and was given enormous freedom um, as, a, as someone, I think I was 25, 26 years old. And, and we set up a business and we went around acquiring businesses and, and over the next five years built up a, a chain, ended up, I think, at 31 dealerships and we were turning over about £250 million and represented most manufacturers. Wow. Um, and had an enormous amount of fun and timing, as in everything in life, is everything. And towards the end of the 90s, it became clear that the, the market was pretty strong um, and, and, it, and it was a good time to sell the business. And you had skin in the game as well at that point or were you an employee? Uh, I was an employee, but I was an employee. I was, I was the first employee, if you like. Um, so, so I had a, a reasonable chunk of equity. Sounds good, doesn't it? Not too bad for your first business. And, and you weren't, in, were you, what, what age were you when you actually sold the business? 31. Okay. Um, and disappeared off for a year. And, and, and did an MBA? I did. So I'd actually, so having once upon a time studied um, and used part of my brain, in, in the 11 years or 10 years I'd been working, I, I, I'd sort of, it had been a very trading type 
type occupation. And I had a, a hankering to sort of see if my brain still worked and go and go and study again. And uh, I had a I had a, a, a sort of bet with the chairman of the company who'd been to a uh, INSEAD business school in France. A few, I won't say many years before he wouldn't thank me for that, but a few years before. And um, he, we had a bet that if if we ever were successful in our, in our in our mad venture in cars, and if I could get in, um, then he'd support me to go to INSEAD, which 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 all happened, and uh, I had uh, one of the best years of my life. And find out what happened after that very shortly uh, by staying with me here on Jazz FM with Giles Andrews, who's my business shaper. Latest travel in a couple of minutes. And before that, some words of wisdom for your business from our programme partners at Mishkondorea. Hello, uh, my name is Andrew Yurkiw. I'm a partner in the competition group here at Mishkondorea. Uh, what I want to uh, talk to you about uh, today is an issue that very often small businesses forget about and they think because they are small then certain rules don't apply. Well there is a whole body of rules in the UK which have been in place for uh, the last 12 years or so uh, and they're called competition law. And our friend, the regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, expects all businesses, large and small, to have a basic understanding of the rules. Now, there are some very, very helpful plain English guidelines on the Competition and Markets Authority website, and they tell you the basics of what you need to know. So simple things like, you shouldn't agree with one of your competitors what prices you're both going to charge for your product or you shouldn't carve up the market by saying, I'm going to uh, service Fred, you've got to service Jack, and I won't service Jack so long as you don't service Fred's requirements. Simple things like that. Uh, And one of the classic mistakes we come across time and time again is smaller businesses saying to us, but we're only tiny, this can't be a problem. Unfortunately, that doesn't normally uh, hold water with the regulator. So you do need to be alive uh, to the rules and what they mean for you. The downside, if you get caught up in any of these investigations, is uh, you're going to spend your time, instead of running the business and trying to make a profit, uh, you'll be having to spend time talking to a regulator who'll be asking you uncomfortable questions. And if you've really got it wrong, then you might face a penalty of uh, several thousand pounds, which is the last thing you need when you're starting up your business. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You're listening to Jazz Shapers. Every Saturday morning, I get the chance to talk to someone who's shaping the world of business, an entrepreneur, a co-founder, someone who has gone and done something. If you've missed any of those programmes, iTunes is your destination. Put in the words Jazz and Shapers. If you're flying in the future with British Airways, you can even relax and listen to some of the best interviewees on there as well. Or cityam.com if you've missed a couple of others also. Giles Andrews is my business shaper today. He's the executive chair and co-founder of Zopa. They're the peer-to-peer lending platform, and they've just lent, if you were listening earlier, they're just over a billion pounds over the last uh, 10 years or so. Amazing stuff. Now, we were at the point where you went to INSEAD, Giles, where you'd sold the business. You'd taken, you had some equity in it. You were a young man. You're not, you're not young anymore, but you were even younger then. And you had a break. I mean, you're, I believe you set up a consultancy where you're going to advise startups and things. Well, I went, right? I went back, actually, after INSEAD. And, and some of us who'd, who'd um, embarked upon our, our, our car uh, experience got back to the company still existed so um, a holding company remained um, after the sale of the, the car business which at the time was sort of 90% of what the holding company did 
and a number of us got back together again. And I always think um, that entrepreneurs learn more from their failure than their success. And, and, and the next period was not a great success. In fact, we, we all sort of um, partly fell out with each other um, and, 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 and I ended up leaving the business and, as you say, setting up a business on my own with, with the intention of remaining on my own and, and uh, doing a bit of angel investing and helping startups raise money with with uh, the incredibly fortunate piece of luck that I managed to sell a piece of consultancy service to a very major retailer who was at the time investigating car retailing. And I persuaded them that I knew more about car retailing than they could hire from McKinsey or BCG or something like that and sold them a, a six-week piece of work that turned into a sort of intermittent two- or three-year project, which was fantastic, and, and met some great people. Uh, and, and having that, if you like, as a... As a, as a backdrop allowed me to explore other things on my own and as I said do some angel investing and, and help some startups raise money. And apart from that obviously you enjoyed that consultancy but you were, in, you were looking at a number of businesses it sounds like back to the idea of you being not being a consultant, not being an accountant not being a lawyer and those other things that probably what you enjoyed the most was being super involved in one thing and I imagine that one thing when it came along was and it was called Zopa was something that really kind of got you interested how did that was it a chance meeting with it with that with that group of people so, so I was looking for a project you're right um, and um, one of the guys who came up with the original idea of Zopa was a friend of mine called James Alexander who I'd been to Intiab with um, six or seven years before and uh, he'd been he'd uh, been part of a group of people who left the online bank egg um, a, a group of people led by uh, someone called Richard Duval um, and about 10 of them left Egg at the same sort of time towards the end of 2003, early 2004 and, and set up a, what, what they called uh, an incubation unit, if you like, to explore ideas predominantly in financial services because most of them had a background in financial services. And this idea of peer-to-peer, how did it happen? Did they suddenly say, oh, I know what it is. That's what's missing. I mean, that's a very big idea to have. So the youngest guy on the team was a guy called Dave Nicholson, um, who'd worked in the strategy team at Egg. And he came up with the idea of of, of peer-to-peer lending. and uh, called, amongst other things, eBay for money in, in, the, in its sort of early iteration. In fact, the working title for the, for the project was Rialto, which is a bridge in Venice linking two market squares. Um, and it was a very, very simple idea, connecting people who had some money who otherwise might invest it with people who'd want to borrow it. And um, the team, uh, some of the team were really behind this idea, others weren't. So the team was beginning to fracture, um, and it ended up with three people thinking this is something we want to do um, and were unclear originally as to how to raise the money to get the business launched. So I got a phone call from my friend James saying, uh, Giles, don't you help startups raise money? You know, Would you like to come and talk to us? Maybe you could give us a hand. And, and I think we were, you know, everyone was pretty unclear. Is this a business that we could go out and raise angel funding for, you know, a few million pounds? Um, or is it a business that we should try and get backing from a big corporate. That was one of the plans. In fact, the team approached Betfair, which I suppose in some ways was a similar business, and, and looked uh, to Betfair saying, should 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 uh, uh, the early Zopa partner with someone like Betfair? Um, and actually, my suggestion was we should try and raise some venture capital funding for it. So, so we should sort of build a business plan that was fundable by venture capitalists. And, uh, and that's what we did. And find out how that happened for them in the first few years. It means I know a bit of music. And this is Mr. Albert King with Born Under a Bad Sign. If it wasn't for bad luck, 
Albert King with Born Under a Bad Sign. Giles Andrews has been talking to me about how Zopa happened, and we were at the point where it's all about raising money and you went for some venture capital. I often get asked the question, well, how, you know, how does it, how does that work? How do you have a credible story um, that people buy into that then allows them to part with money, hard-earned money, someone's hard-earned money, not your hard-earned money, but someone else's. What was the, the what would you think, looking back, were the reasons why I think you raised over 35 million quid? And I don't know how- Not all in one go. No, I was <laughs> imagine not all in one go, but over the period of time that you've done it, uh, tips from the top, Giles, just a couple of things. Uh, the do's of raising money, what would they be for you, looking back? So, so the irony was, no, None of us had ever raised venture capital before that point. So I, I'd raised money on the public markets uh, in my Coverdale days, um, but none of us had ever raised venture capital. So we were pretty naive. But now looking back with hindsight at what, what is it that venture capitalists value in businesses? Um, and uh, the economics of venture capital are such that they need businesses to be extraordinarily successful, you know, one or two of their investments to be extraordinarily successful. So they back big ideas. Um, so you can go and present, and, and some dispirited people sometimes come to me and say they're failing to raise venture capital. They've got a great idea for a business, and they can't get venture capital funding for it. And typically, that's because the venture capitalists don't think it could, not will, but couldn't necessarily be big enough. Um, so no matter how good a business it is, it can't make them the sort of 100x return that they want something to make them. So every business that gets venture capital money has to have some chance, might be a very small chance, has to have some chance of being a genuinely big, potentially global business. So they backed big ideas. And, and Zopa was a big idea. So no one had ever done it before. There's a lot of questioning around if it's such a clever idea, why has no one ever done it before? And I think we had some quite good answers to that around how it was only recently that technology could be used in, in a manner that was cost-effective enough to be venture-fundable. So Egg had been built at a cost of over £100 million. That's not a check size a venture capitalist would invest in. But we, we came up with a credible plan to build it for an amount of money that could be financeable by venture capital. And then just looking forward a little bit, obviously, one of the key challenges for a new entrant into an old market is confidence, especially when it's about money. And I know you talked before to to various people about one of the hardest things to do was establish confidence. What happens if it all goes wrong? How do you address that fear? How do you get people over the hurdle at the beginning to actually part with their money? So, yeah, you're right. It's all about confidence and trust. Um, And I think one of the overriding characteristics of most of the entrepreneurs you meet, I think, is one of uh, optimism. Certainly is. Um, So so we optimistically believe we could build trust in our brand new idea because eBay had persuaded people people to trust them that you could send a parcel through the post to a total stranger. And even in the days before PayPal, there was some reliance on money coming back again. Um, So we thought, well, what would be different about money? But we recognized it would be hard to build trust. So we thought to ourselves, well, why are banks trusted? And therefore, how can we compete with that? And it was quite clear to us that banks were trusted then, bear in mind we're talking pre-crisis, for being incredibly big, solid institutions with big vaults in the basement and big tower blocks in Canary Wharf. But they weren't necessarily trusted to have the best interests of the customer at heart. And they weren't necessarily trusted for being simple and easy to understand. And they didn't explain themselves very well. They didn't explain how they made money. Um, So we thought, well, we we can't compete with tower blocks in Canary Wharf or vaults in the basement. So the one thing we can compete with is transparency and just make it really clear how it works, how we make money, and therefore how our customers can engage with us and how they can get a better deal. Um, I think we thought, perhaps naively and optimistically, that would be enough. And the biggest lesson was in the first couple of years or so of the business, we had this business that genuinely offered people better value, but it was very, very hard to get people to, to trust us. We'll have our final chat with my guest today. That's Charles Andrews. Plus, we're playing a track from Marlena Shaw. That's after the latest traffic and travel here on Jazz FM.
Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Like a sound you hear that lingers in your ear, but you can't forget from sundown to sunset. It's all in the air, you hear it everywhere, no matter what you do. Marlene Shaw with California Soul. Giles Andrews with me just for a few more minutes. And Giles, we were talking about building trust and I've talked a little bit about, you've talked a little bit about venture capital and raising it and the need for a big idea. It's been 10 years now. There's always a, a good pause for reflection. I mean, a year's okay, three and five, but 10 is a significant slug of your life. As you look back, and then I want to ask you about looking forward, where has it felt like it was really tough and you thought, don't know about this. Great idea, but not going anywhere. So it felt really tough in sort of 2006, 2007. Um, we actually had a tragedy within the business, and Richard Duval, the, the first CEO and leader of the business, died very suddenly, um, which quite apart from you know, the obvious tragedy to his family and friends, was, was tough for the business as well. And we, at the time, were trying to get established in the United States um, with, with, with limited success. And we were trying to build trust in the UK. And frankly, uh, while the business was growing, wasn't really growing fast enough to satisfy uh, our needs as a team or, or the, the desires of our investors. So, so I'd say 2007 was 2006 when Richard died. Going into 2007 were, were the darkest hours of the business. And from those darkest hours, how does one bounce back? Because you're here, you're telling the story, there's a smile on your face, a glint in your eye. But seriously, how have you managed to get through those times and why is the business now flourishing? So I think, I think we, we, so I mentioned earlier that entrepreneurs should learn uh, generally more from their failures than their, than their successes. But the other, the other point entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs must remember is that life depends a lot on luck. Um, and we, Zopa had some very bad luck, which I've just described, but we also then went on to have some very good luck. And I think we, we rode that luck well um, and, and maximised the opportunities that it brought. So we took some pretty tough action on the business in those dark times and, and cut costs dramatically and sort of went to our venture capitalists and said, you know, we're going to have to pause for a while. This isn't going to grow as fast as you, we or anyone else wanted, but let's at least get the business into a mode where it can survive. So I think that was an important decision to make. It meant we, we parted company with a lot of people who become friends, some of the people who founded the business. But I think it was absolutely essential to guarantee the future of the business. And then having done that, we walked into the credit crisis. And of course, none of us, none of us are clever enough to have seen, foreseen it. But it was enormously helpful. I mean, I say that without trying to sound like I'm gloating at, at the misfortune of many people. But, but the crisis was enormously helpful to us. And it was helpful on two dimensions, really. One, that this trust issue we were talking about earlier suddenly became easier because the, the banks became villains rather than just people um, rather than businesses that people didn't really like, they became businesses that people actively disliked. And when you have pictures of, of people queuing up on the News at 10 to take money out of Northern Rock or Bradford and Bingley or uh, you know, institutions like that, then, then suddenly the idea of, of putting money into a, this new innovative business mm. called peer-to-peer lending became less of a step. And we were able to tell a story about how, although we were only three years old and we hadn't been terribly successful, the one thing we'd done really well was lend the money we lent. And it had all come back. So we could we got a great opportunity in the media to tell a story about this innovative upstart actually being more conservative, more sensibly run, more prudently run than the big institutions. And that, that was a turning point. Um, and that was 
uh, th that meant that the, the sort of trust issue, by, by no means solved overnight, was on the way to being solved. And at that point, with a, a low-cost business and you know, steeply growing numbers, I thought, this is a real business and this can work. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been a great guest. Um, just before you go, though, I need one more thing from you. It's your song choice and why you've chosen it. Um, I've chosen I'm Still In Love With You by Al Green. Um, I, I think Al Green has the most extraordinary voice in the, in the, in the soul canon, if you like. Um, and without wanting to embarrass her too much, it's a song that means a lot to my wife and I. Fantastic. Well, here it is just for you. That was Al Green with I'm Still In Love With You, the song choice of my business shaper today, Giles Andrews, one of a small group of people who are genuinely pioneering in the financial services world, someone who fundamentally understood the importance of trust in that business and helped Zopa create exactly that with consumers. And someone who was really humble, he talked a lot about timing. Well, actually, I think it was a lot down to his own ability to lead a business. Really good stuff. Do join me again, same time, same place. That's next Saturday, 9am, for another edition of Jazz Shapers. Meantime, though, stay with us here on Jazz FM, because coming up next, it's Nigel Williams. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mish Rea. It's business, but it's personal.